Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 92, Pilgrims Who Progress. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, Golden Gate Fiber Institute, Join the Fun and Excitement. You can find out more at GoldenGateFiberInstitute.org and Carolina Homespun at CarolinaHomespun.com. Hello. I am in a tumultuous week, and it's a good kind of tumultuous week. We're having a fence built around our property, which um, will be a very good thing. Uh, You can't really keep the wildlife out, what with them being wild and all here in Arizona, but you can go some distance to keep some of the creepy crawly nasties out. There's... um, there was a snake in the street this morning that someone had hit with their car that I'm not joking you. Um, let's see. The diameter of the snake body, and it may have just eaten fairly recently because the middle of its body was pretty thick, but uh, the diameter of the body was probably close to, I'm doing this with my hands right now, four, four and a half, five inches. It was not a rattlesnake. Um, they think it was a California king snake, the guys who put in the fence. But uh, it is the kind of thing that you want to keep out of your yard when you have kids. So you can put um, pretty fine gauge chicken wire around the base of any fencing that you put up. And that that goes some distance towards keeping the animals out, the critters. Um, But, you know, there are snakes, obviously, that will fit through that and and other other kinds of things. But... um, but we are nonetheless putting the fence up, which will give the kids some places to hang out and play, which is a good thing. I have also not been gainfully employed this week, so I have been, you know, getting things organized and, and getting things ready for all the trips that I'm about to take and writing a little bit more for myself, although not in the blog, uh, although I, I did put up some pictures, but but I haven't done nearly enough blog knitting. We had our spinning guild meeting where everybody got to show off the things that they had made for Harriet's challenge. We had a, a member who challenged everyone a year ago to make something that in some way represented their um, their favorite parts of the Sonoran Desert. And I made a pair of felted fiber trends clogs, which I've mentioned before. I'm going to take them on the Sea Socks cruise for the uh, felted slipper contest, but they are not a sea-oriented theme. They are definitely desert, and uh, and I'm very happy with how they came out, and um, and that was both wonderful and and also sad because we've we lost Harriet um, just months after she gave everyone the challenge. She was quite something and quite the boutique artist, and um, and that was good. But at the same meeting, I agreed, I agreed to do a knit along just with a, my friend Lynn on the apricot jacket out of the Rowan 27, I think, um, brochure catalog thing. And it's a problematic piece of knitting, so I've challenged myself. I also got this promo from a listener of ours. (laughs) 
Welcome to the Knit More Girls podcast. We're a mother-daughter duo talking about knitting. Our regular segments include On the Needles, Mother Knows Best, Reviews, and When When Knitting Knitting Attacks. Join us for a variegated knitting experience. I'm Jasmine, the daughter. I'm Gigi, the mother. We We are are the the Knit More Girls, Girls, telling you to knit knit more. So, join Jasmine and Gigi at Knit More Girls. Their episodes that they've done so far are up on iTunes and uh, and on their website. And I will put a link to their website in the show notes. I also will have links to the pattern choices for this month's uh, incentive for donating. I'll have links to the pattern choices um, for you to take a look at. Um, probably not today. Today is Saturday. I didn't have time to podcast until today. Um, but probably Monday. I want to make sure with Dixie that uh, that I've got the right the right pattern choices. I have a ton of things to share with you that are book related, and one thing that is craftlet specific related. Uh, Wendy McDee, who is Wendy McDee on Ravelry, has put together a Yahoo group for craftlet. She is the one in charge of it. She's maintaining it. She is the she is the guru. But the idea was not all of our listeners are on Ravelry and not all of our listeners are knitters, which is something that we've talked about before. Um, not even all of you are crocheters. So acknowledging that and giving everyone a forum was something that Wendy particularly wanted to do. And I told her to knock herself out and run with the idea. So I'm going to read to you what she Uh, wrote to me, which is on the main homepage for the group. She said, uh, Craftlet, based on the the podcast for crafters who love books, for everyone who loves Craftlet, Heather Ordover, me, uh, good literature and crafting. Here we can all congregate, listen together, and talk about what we are hearing on the podcast. Everything from my rambling, that would be me, to the books we're working through. Here we will be able to talk about the knitting and or crafting, which the book is inspiring. For example, during Little Women, we could make a marmy shawl. Amy might need a fine thread crocheted choker with gems. Joe may need a vest or rib warmers. Um, Meg may need a pair of gloves, as she has lost one. Whatever we would decide to do, finally we can come together and be inspired by one another and by Heather, who has touched so many lives. Please join and jump right in. Um, This corresponds to an email that I received from... (laughs) from Judith, who wrote me this fabulous and very long email. Judith in um, Alyssa Viejo, California. She said, I could post some pics of the stuff that I work on while listening to your podcast, but they aren't really knitting related. I just wanted to remind all of you that for the gallery pictures, and by the way, for those of you who had tried and wrote to me and told me that the gallery was broken, I have since fixed the gallery. Um, the gallery pictures shouldn't just be knitting related. We have some art that Jen made. We have some knitting that some other people made. I think there's a couple of paintings up there. I totally would love to have a gallery that just speaks to what it is you create, no matter what medium you use when you create. Um, we have such wonderfully talented listeners. We have Jenny the Potter. Ooh, and by the way, Elizabeth of Tucson, who won the mug. Jenny tried to contact you to get you to select the mug pattern, and 
she's afraid that the email went straight to your spam box. So either email me at mamaonits at gmail.com or go to jennythepotter.com and contact Jenny. Actually, I think Jenny's email is jenny at jennythepotter.com um, so that you can you can get your mug because you won. It's very exciting. Um, so yes, absolutely. Send me pictures. Send me pictures, please. Also, those of you who are interested in recording for little women, I got um, I got a very tentative email from uh, a Ravelry listener who was really annoyed with one of the readers from last week. I think I think I know which chapter. I think it was chapter three, and she was kind of hesitant to say, you know, I know you get this stuff for free, but it really was annoying and it made me not want to listen. When that happens, absolutely email and let me know because, you know, way back when we did Pride and Prejudice, I had had the idea that I wanted to have only books that were read by one reader for the consistency. And that's both a blessing and a curse because if the reader is even a little bit weak, it can really throw you and then you're stuck. With Tale of Two Cities and short stories, obviously we really branched out and we listened to lots of different readers. And in Tales of Two Cities, I had to read some book, cha- some chapters. Becky read some chapters. Um, we had a lot of fill in the gaps. For those of you who are on Ravelry in the Craftlet site, there's a Craftlet group. I am going to this week go on and list all of the chapters that I need readers for because there are quite a few chapters in Little Women that are just appalling. And once I post that list, just claim a chapter, go record it, and then as soon as you can, send it to me via a particular website. It's called yousendit.com, Y-O-U-S-E-N-D-I-T.com. From this website, you can send me large files and you can send them to me for free. Basically what it does is it hosts the file on its own site for, I think it's a week, and then I get an email saying, hey, click this link and you can download this file. It's free, it's fast, it's easy, and it's pretty much the only way to get me large audio files. You can send them to me at mamaonits at gmail.com and I'll get the email in that box and then go download it. Um, but but definitely, if there is a reader who is annoying the gunk out of you, let me know because since multiple readers are reading multiple stories, there is a good chance that reader will have recorded, I mean multiple chapters, there's a good chance that reader will pop up again. And this way I can kind of preemptively avoid uh, annoying readers, <laughs> which I'm sorry to say happens often. But again, it is a free service and that's that's what you get. So don't hesitate to email me with things like that. It is all good. Um, the I'm looking through my notes real quick because I don't want to forget anything. And I think pretty much everything else. Oh, good. All of my notes go on straight on to um, Little Women. Crafty wise, this week I have been knitting. I have been obsessed. And if you go to my Mama O Knits blog for jeepers what day did I put it on there I must have done it it must be a blog post for the 24th or the the 25th of April 2008 there's a a post where I basically took all of the knitting related and some cast on related videos from YouTube 
and I posted all of them. I embedded all of them on my website. So it is a page of videos. And it all started with a video that Zabet from the Anticraft did of Stephanie Pearl McPhee knitting a sock using, um, I guess it's called an overhand technique. If, you, if you've ever read Richard Rutt's book, um, The History of Knitting, there comes a point fairly early on in the narrative where he talks about Victorian knitting. And what it requires is for women to hold the knitting needle much like a, um, a pencil or a pen. I'm looking at my hand while I'm describing this. They would throw the yarn which if you hold a pen or pencil right now, you will see creates a problem. So Stephanie Pearl McPhee knits like this. It's called Irish cottage knitting. It's also a kind of production knitting because it's extremely fast. However, the thing that Zabet didn't get a really close picture of, um, no fault hers, Stephanie is knitting way too fast for anyone to have gotten this, is how she wraps the yarn. If any of you can knit like this, and any of you are good with a, di or have someone in the house who is good with a digital camera, and can get step-by-step -step photos for how you wrap the yarn to tension it, and how you specifically get the yarn around the tip of the needle. I can understand exactly what it is that Stephanie's doing. I can't see how she manages to keep the yarn far enough down her ring finger because it looks like it's coming off of her ring finger. I thought it was coming off her middle finger, but there's one freeze frame that I managed to get that shows fairly clearly that it's coming off of her ring finger. When she pitches her fingers forwards to wrap the yarn around the tip of the protruding needle, I can't figure out how she does it. I can't figure out how she's tensioning it, and I can't figure out how she can get the yarn down that far. I invariably miss the needle. So I don't know. I'm throwing it out to you. We've got thousands of people who are listening to this show. Somebody out there has to be able to knit like this and tell me how. I will be happy to post your video up on the Craftlet show notes to share with everyone. Actually, I'm just kind of interested right now in ergonomic knitting. I've I have wrist trouble from time to time, which you all know. Um, that's old news. But I have started to compile information for teaching a class in ergonomic knitting. I personally can knit about, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six different ways. And that includes armpit knitting. Um, I don't have a knitting sheath or a, a whisk. Um, I don't have any of the extra tools. I can just do armpit knitting with a really long needle. And then uh, depending on whether I'm using sock needles, circular needles, or straight needles, that adjusts uh, a certain amount of the handhold, the, the hold of the, the way my hand holds the needle. <laughs> Sorry about that. Anyway. If you have an interesting way that you knit, videotape it or photograph it and send it. I am very curious. I've also been working on a secret surprise for my roommate, Dawn, who is a Craftlet listener, who will be accompanying me on Seasox 08. Uh, Chrissy Gardner of Gardner, I think it's Gardner Yarnworks. She does um, knitting patterns, especially sock patterns. She and I are going to be kind of team teaching sock heels. I'm doing top down, she's doing toe up, and we're doing a variety of, of heel options, because not everyone's foot is the same, 
And uh, honestly, not everyone's knitting style is the same. And some styles of knitting lend themselves better to certain heels. So I'm going to be teaching that half, the top-down half of the class, and she's going to be teaching the toe-up half, which honestly is a huge relief to me because the toe-up stuff requires funky math, and I'm not sure I'm there yet. I'm very, very excited to uh, get to sit down with Chrissy and take a look at how she's calculating this stuff because it's, it's tough. It's tough, and unlike some of our fabulously geeky listeners, I am not the strongest in math. Still, I continue to be not so strong in math. Though I have to say, I am learning a lot from my son's second grade teacher, <laughs> Mrs. Young. She is our second grade teacher, and she is spectacular, and she's doing a really good job with the kids at learning number sense, which appears to be what I missed when I was a kid. I'm having horrible hiccups right now. And I also keep coughing. We're having bad allergies again. Oh, but speaking of allergies, the TheraPick that I told you about two episodes ago from uh, LeeValley.com. Oh my goodness. This TheraPick thing I did shortly after getting the TheraPick got a mosquito bite. It was, as always, right on a vein, right on my ankle. Horrible, horrible, hideous place to get a mosquito bite, especially if you have the allergic reactions that I have. The TheraPick arrived the next day. I was afraid that was going to be too late, but I applied said TheraPick onto said bite. I pressed the blue button until it hurt too much, and I simply had to stop. Because what the TheraPick does is it, it heats up the area. And I thought, well, geez, there's no way I'm going to be able to heat it up enough to do any good. Because I've done, as I've mentioned before, the boiling hot tea bag trick, which seems to work. And um, now I'm realizing probably if I had done the boiling hot tea bag in a more localized fashion, and if I had been able to keep it boiling hot for longer, that it probably would have worked as well. But this therapeutic thing, I literally just sat there watching TV, and I would heat the thing boiling hot, and then let it cool down, and then reheat it, and let it cool down, and then reheat it, and let it cool down. And it says in the instructions that you're probably only going to have to do this maybe twice, maybe three times. Well, for me, I had to do it um, five or six times, probably every, I don't know, eight hours, 12 hours. So for one bite, I probably used the TheraPick a grand total of, I don't know, four, four different application cycles. And here's the amazing thing. I can still see the bite and I can still see that the bite is swollen, but I can touch it and it doesn't itch. I can sleep. I didn't wake up in the middle of the night feeling one of my toenails scratching the gunk out of my mosquito bite in my sleep, which is something that I've done in the past. I, um, I think I have to say it works. I haven't tested this with multiple bites. I'm assuming it will, you know, not be quite as effective, but it's certainly not a load of malarkey because if it can stop the it itches so much I can't sleep thing, if it can stop the dear lord where is my blowtorch thing, then I, I have to say it works. So very exciting news that if you go to the show notes for episode 90, you can collect the link that will take you straight to where you can purchase it. And on top of that, it's only 15 bucks. 
So we're going to get one for my son to put in his backpack because he has the same kind of allergic reactions that I do. Oh, and on sons, my younger son who had the ear surgery, I will post a picture of his new ear and um, I'm writing a note to myself to post the picture of the ear, uh, which I also should send to the, the surgeon. His ear is progressing marvelously. Um, he can touch it, he can wiggle it, he can take his shirts on and off by himself. He's just doing remarkably well, and um, and he's very proud of it. It's really sweet. He's very proud of his little ear, and and that to me is just everything. Everything. It's wonderful. Uh, very, very, very happy with the surgery. I also wanted to do a quick shout out to Knitting Out Loud because I just got um, as a, uh, a demo copy the No Idle Hands book that just came out and I wanted to uh, update you on a couple of things. Books that you can get through Knitting Out Loud that you can order toll-free at 1-877-567-3950 are America Knits, The Art of Fair Isle Knitting, The History of Hand Knitting, the one that I just talked about, Knitting Memories, Reflections on the Knitter's Life, No Idle Hands, The Social History of American Knitting, and Stitch and Bitch, The Knitter's Handbook. Now, this is something that was brought to my attention a couple of weeks ago. You can't order these books... Um, for international shipping. However, Knitting Out Loud audiobooks are available online from knittingoutloud.com, interweave.com slash books, which also has an audio preview there, and amazon.com. They're available at your local bookstore and yarn shop and uh, to the book trade through Baker and Taylor and to yarn shops through Interweave Press. Okay, that's all true. There are also books at Audible. So now we've got knittingoutloud.com, amazon.com, audible.com, overdrive.com, and interweave.com. And Kathy wrote and said they are also available through Playaway, which I am not familiar with, but I am very interested in. So what I wanted to let you know is that I'm listening to No Idle Hands right now, and oh my goodness, first off, my husband has got to listen to this book. He loves history, and... I've read pieces of No Idle Hands, but I clearly did not read the whole book. I thought I did. I didn't. The colonial section, while well, I'm watching John Adams right now on TV, the colonial section is particularly moving and wonderful, and I highly recommend it. So, No Idle Hands. Now you have lots of choices for where you can get the books from Knitting Out Loud. They are wonderful. I don't know if you belong to knitting guilds or fiber guilds that would be interested in buying a copy for the guild or if you just want to have one for yourself because you're going to want to listen to it over and over again. And can I just tell you, you're going to want to listen to it over and over again. It was wonderful. So enough on that. Let's move on to Little Women. Ah. <sighs> We have uh, a listener, Terry, who has actually read Pilgrim's Progress. She said, the book is incredibly timeless. John Bunyan was brilliant. His ability to incorporate the Bible into his work is just amazing. It is a book that can be enjoyed by children who do not miss the message, as well as studied by adults. I've done a little bit of research on Pilgrim's Progress, and clearly it is a book that I'm going to need to listen to now. Um, this is one of those times when the internet has become invaluable because when I read Little Women as a, as a child, I kept thinking, oh, Pilgrim's Progress, how interesting. I wonder if I should read it. No, it's probably way too old-fashioned and boring. 
And from what I can tell from the research that I'm do I've done, and then from getting an email like this from Terry, I think I can say an unqualified guess, which is it's not going to be too old-fashioned and you're really going to like it. And not only that, but Dante's Inferno is kind of the, the Catholic um, early Renaissance version of this kind of journey story. Pilgrim's Progress is the Protestant version, which is neither here nor there. It's just for you to know. Very similar in many ways to the allegorical Dante, although it's a little bit more obvious, like there are characters named Vanity, or characters named Evangelist, or the main character's name is Christian, or there's a character in the second part named Mercy. Um, the first part is Christian's journey to heaven. The second part is his wife and children's journey. And from what I can tell, the, the first part, Christian's part, is very interesting, very good, very well done. The second part seems to be even more interesting because it's, in many ways, it's a more complete story. And I'm very excited by that. Um, so I'm going to be looking into getting, uh, getting that off of LibriVox. And I don't know if we're going to do it as a book. I think, uh, I'm, I'm hearing some lobbying for The Wizard of Oz for our next book, but, uh, but it's something to probably check out. And it might be something for those of you who need to listen to more things because you're constantly doing stuff and you're finding that Craftlet and the other podcasts that you listen to just don't fill your time enough. Maybe that's something to listen to while we're listening to Little Women. I also got a wonderful uh, picture from Nina, Jeanina. She said uh, she got, uh, although she doesn't think they're Madame Alexander dolls, she did get dolls, she and her sister, when they were children, and they're Little Women dolls. And she said that her, her sister, who is the girly one, got Joe, and Nina, who is the tomboy, got Meg. And she has a picture of her Meg doll. And she said she is much patched and much loved. And she is a beautiful doll. And she, I, I swear to you, she looks like Meg. It's just perfect. And so I am going to, she's given me permission to put the picture of her doll up on the show notes so that you can see the doll as well. Um, Elizabeth emailed. And and Elizabeth, yes, absolutely, Um if you uh, if you want to read, please do. Um, and in fact, if you're not on Ravelry, let me know because I'll communicate with you directly and then we can figure out which chapter you're going to do or chapters. Influence on her when she was a child. And um, she said it made me concerned with being a good person and living a good life since that's what I think it's all about. I like how it acknowledges that this is a struggle and something that we fight to do constantly and that it doesn't come easy or naturally, not even to Marmy. She said, I was intrigued by your comment in the last episode that there are no villains in this novel, which I think is mostly true. The battles the characters fight are usually internal, particularly in the case of Joe. I suppose the only villains that appear are not so much characters as abstract concepts, vanity, pride, anger, fear, pain. And of course, that goes along with Pilgrim's Progress, that um, in many ways, their, their villains are these, these abstract things, although they, they're not presented in Little Women as allegories, as actual human beings who are vanity or pride or anger or fear. Um, that's definitely what the girls are wrestling with. And and I have to say that one of the things that I appreciate most in not having a, a physical villain or, you know, someone who is evil, who is working against them, is that in many ways, Little Women is far more 
realistic. I mean, we, we kind of look at the March girls as very simplistic. I, I mean, not us. We're better than that. But I think the, the world tends to think of little women as being, oh, those simple little girls who are being good and, you know, saying their prayers and cooking for the poor. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But how hard is it to be a good person? I think that that's one of the, the points that uh, Elizabeth is getting at is that these are things that we wrestle with all the time and they are our our demons that um, I think it it really shows how little pop culture understands human psychology you know I, I talk about the Oprahification of the world and I don't mean that as a criticism of Oprah I actually think Oprah deals with things on a very complex level, I think it's what the media does with what she does that is problematic. Um, it's hard to be a good person. It's hard to be happy when you're washing the dishes. And those are struggles that we all have. And I think our husbands and sons and boyfriends and partners and significant others and girlfriends struggle with the same stuff. And I think it's kind of nice to have it acknowledged um, in a story that is is so oddly compelling as Little Women is. Um, I already mentioned that uh, Jenny Lanners, Jenny at JennyThePotter.com, and it's J-E-N-N-I-E. She needs to have Elizabeth, who won the mug incentive, contact her so that you can get your mug, Elizabeth. Um, Judith. Judith, who I mentioned before, who emailed, said that she's Uh, struggling with knitting books that she's checked out of her library because she's a visual learner. Judith, I wanted to find out, have you checked out Teach Yourself Visually Knitting? It is not a perfect book, but it does have some pretty darn good pictures in it to, and step-by-step pictures for teaching yourself how to knit if, um, if you haven't been successful yet. Um, and Spider Knit. Our, our friend from Australia who has written to us before, she said that she's having an interesting reaction to the book Little Women because she read the book March since the last time she read Little Women. And so coming to this book again after that is fairly different. I have not read the book March. I am downloading it right now, I think, um, from Audible. It is the story from Mr. March's and eventually Marmy's perspective. And it's it's very well historically researched. The woman who wrote it does a lot of historical um, writing. It's his point of view and what he's doing and also insight onto how he lost his, his money and all that kind of thing. And that part is fictional. However, his character is based on Bronson Alcott, Louisa May Alcott's father. And the whole transcendentalist and friend of Emerson and Thoreau and and all that stuff, which makes me think that March is probably more historical than fictional. And it's uh, obviously Spider-Knit liked it. I have a feeling that I'm going to like it too. It's certainly something for, for you to look into. If anyone else has read it and has any more insight on Little Women based on what you read in March, please, please, please send me send me an audio, send me a comment. I would be happy to read it on the air. Um, let me know. You know, the I talk about this and some of you take me up on it and some of you don't. But the whole idea of having a conversation about these books 
I am very serious about it. If you want me to call you and we'll do a Skype chat and put that up on audio, absolutely do. Uh, audio can record four minutes of audio and then I can play that or, you know, send me an email and I'll read it. But I absolutely love including you guys in these conversations. I'm, you know, I'm certainly not the be-all, end-all expert on any of these things. I'm, I'm only able to do the research that I'm able to do in between, in between everything else I'm doing. Um, the other thing that Spider Knit said is that she didn't like the movie with Sarah Sarandon and um, Susan. I'm sorry, Susan Sarandon and and Winona Ryder, um, which I certainly appreciate. It's not for everyone, and you know we all get ideas in our heads of how these people are going to look and act and be, and um, and when the movie doesn't match up, it doesn't matter how good it is. You're just not going to like it, and it just happened that Susan Sarandon really actually freakishly looks like my image of Marmy. Um, I personally had trouble with Meg. Meg did not look the way I imagined Meg. But I think that's because Meg had become Elizabeth Bennett's older sister in my mind. And so my vision of the Bennett's kind of superseded the vision of the Alcott girls. And anyway, the other thing she said is, I see the girls commenting on being poor as a relative thing. That is, they used to be rich and now they've lost all their money. So they contrast what they remember to varying degrees and that makes them feel poor. Also, they still associate with the same class of peers and compared to them, they are poor. And she says, in my great tradition of pop culture comparisons, I give you Cordelia Chase. At the uh, at the end of Buffy, when she moved on to the series Angel, her father lost all of his money for not paying his taxes, and Cordy ends up sounding a lot like a modern-day March girl, mostly Amy for the spoiled bit. Which makes me consider whether, if the March girls would have been quite so good, if they hadn't lost all of their money, or whether they'd be spoiled. And that is a very interesting question. I personally think that Beth would have been good no matter what, and Joe. I think, for all of her moaning and whining, probably would still be taking care of Aunt March. Meg and Amy? I don't know. What do you think? Would they be such good people if they hadn't lost something themselves? It's always an interesting question. It's that kind of, you know, how can you know you're having a good day if you haven't had a bad day at some point? It's a really good point. There's something else that Spidernet brings up, which I hadn't thought of before. Um, and I'd never, well, I'd thought of, but I'd never thought of it in these terms. She said, is there a bit of middle-class judgment going on here, possibly linked to what you referred to as a Puritan work ethic or what uh, we also refer to as a Protestant work ethic? There is a stereotype, she says, and one I'm assuming isn't restricted to just my own country, and I think this is true, that middle-class people see themselves as superior to both lower and upper classes. The stereotype holds that the lower-class people are cheap, and the upper-class people are both snobbish and lack good moral values. For instance, they steal from the middle class, have affairs, and so on. Um, I've never heard it said this way, but I think that that um, it also depends on which class you're in, how the stereotype goes. I think rich at least in the States, and feel free to chime in on this one because I'm, I'm only going what I've heard, that rich people tend to think that middle-class people think that they're better because they have to work harder than rich people, and poor people think that middle-class people are putting on airs. And middle-class people, I don't know that middle-class people think that poor people here are cheap, but I think they definitely here think they're uneducated, and I think they think that rich people are snobs. Um, this is something that I have found to be quite interesting in teaching largely African-American and Hispanic and Asian students in New York is 
we always had a time where everybody talked about how everybody saw everybody else. I know it sounds ridiculously dangerous, and it would have been had I been at any other school. But listening to the kids talk about the stereotypes of the, the stereotypes that they were aware of that their own cultural group carried, and then the stereotypes that their cultural group carried of the other cultural groups, because it wasn't just ethnic. There were um, class differences within each of my ethnic groups. So it really did become a cultural group. Like there were the wealthier Hispanic students had a whole lot more in common. I'm sorry, the wealthier Hispanic girls had a whole lot more in common with my middle class Asian girls than they did with their own ethnic group of a different social class. It was fascinating and, um, and really says an awful lot about my students and how spectacular they are that, um, that they were able to carry on a conversation like this in when they're, you know, 16 and 17 without ticking each other off. Um, but it's, it's the same, you know, girls tend to understand more about boys than boys do about girls. Um, African-Americans understand a whole lot more about white culture than the larger white culture understands about African-Americans. Um, and I think the, the middle class, upper class, lower class, or working class thing uh, maintains the same kind of trade-offs. The ability to understand each other is, is very different. And I think there's no question that the March girls, by having lost money, not necessarily social standing, because they're still invited to the parties, but having lost money, understand things very differently from the way, say, Meg's friends do. And you won't hear the Meg chapter today, but you will hear it, uh, I think, next week. Which leads me to this week's chapters. Uh, our first chapter, chapter five, is called Being Neighborly. And this is more about uh, Joe and Lori's budding friendship. And chapter six, I think, I think chapter five is more like laying the foundation for stuff that happens later between Joe and Lori and Mr. Lawrence. Chapter six is the beginning of our struggle chapters. Um, our first struggle is Beth's. Beth is the shy one. And this chapter, just to put it all into perspective, is called Beth Finds the Palace Beautiful, which is kind of like heaven um, in, uh, in Pilgrim's Progress. Beth is the first one whose um, dark side we deal with. And I put dark side in laughing quotation marks because of course Beth, Beth is nothing like anyone who has a dark side. But she does have a challenge. She has something that she struggles with, and that is her shyness. Um, and, and also, to a certain degree, um, it, it's not pride like stuck-up pride, but it's pride like she doesn't want to be a burden. Um, you know, taking charity is, is always a, a complicated and difficult decision for anyone to make. And accepting gifts for some people or accepting offers of help for some people is extraordinarily challenging and, and Beth is one of those people. So for today, the the first chapter we listened to, chapter five, is really just one for you to enjoy. Chapter six is one that, if you are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, is going to be a lot more allegorical for you and will have um, a, a lot more direct relationship to the, the Pilgrim's Progress book. Um, and I'm looking, um, the, the other thing to be aware of, especially in chapter six, when Mr. Lawrence talks about having 
lost someone is to remember just how much closer death was to everyone's life. It's very different from, uh, thank God, from the world that we live in, um, but not very different for the rest of the populated world. Um, we in in the industrialized countries in Europe and America have um, relatively low infant mortality rates and childhood mortality rates, and you know we're just one really bad outbreak of a disease that's antibiotic resistance resistant away from reliving this difficult past. But um, death was certainly much more prevalent. Um, not more prevalent, everybody dies. It's, it's that it was much closer to your daily life than, uh, than it is for us now. And in fact, I was watching, of all things, the Darjeeling Express, um, the really goofy Owen Wilson, uh, Jonathan Schwartzman, and Adrian Brody movie the other day. And it's an odd film, all Wes Anderson films are, but there was a, a moment in it that was just heartbreakingly beautiful on the subject of death, and especially children's deaths. And... Um, if you haven't seen it, I'd be interested to know what you think. All right, I've blathered enough. It is now time for you to listen to chapter chapter five. No. Yes, chapter five of Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. What in the world are you going to do now, Joe? Asked Meg one snowy afternoon as her sister came tramping through the hall in rubber boots, old sack and hood, with a broom in one hand and a shovel in the other. "'Going out for exercise,' answered Joe, with a mischievous twinkle in her eyes. "'I should think that two long walks this morning would have been enough. "'It's cold and dull out, and I advise you to stay warm and dry by the fire as I do,' said Meg, with a shiver. "'Never take advice. Can't keep still all day, and not being a pussycat, I don't like to doze by the fire. "'I like adventures, and I'm going to find some.' Meg went back to toast her feet and read Ivanhoe, and Joe began to dig paths with great energy. The snow was light, and with her broom she soon swept a path all round the garden, for Beth to walk in when the sun came out, and the invalid dolls needed air. Now the garden separated the March's house from that of Mr. Lawrence. Both stood in a suburb of the city, which was still countryside, with groves and lawns, large gardens, and quiet streets. A low hedge parted the two estates. On one side was an old brown house, looking rather bare and shabby, robbed of the vines that in summer covered its walls, and the flowers which then surrounded it. On the other side was a stately stone mansion, plainly betokening every sort of comfort and luxury, from the big coach-house and well-kept grounds to the conservatory and the glimpses of lovely things one caught between rich curtains. Yet it seemed a lonely, lifeless sort of house, for no children frolicked on the lawn, no motherly face ever smiled at the windows, and few people went in and out except the old gentleman and his grandson. To Joe's lively fancy, this fine house seemed a kind of enchanted palace, full of splendors and delights which no one enjoyed. She had long wanted to behold these hidden glories, and to know the Lawrence boy, who looked as if he would like to be known, if he only knew how to begin. Since the party, she had been more eager than ever, and had planned many ways of making friends with him. But he had not been seen lately, and Joe began to think he had gone away when she one day spied a brown face at an upper window, looking wistfully down at their garden, where Beth and Amy were snowballing one another. "'That boy is suffering for society and fun,' she said to herself. "'His grandpa does not know what's good for him and keeps him shut up all alone. He needs a party of jolly boys to play with, or somebody young and lively. I've a great mind to go over and tell the old gentleman so.' 
The idea amused Joe, who liked to do daring things and was always scandalizing Meg by her queer performances. The plan of going over was not forgotten. And when the snowy afternoon came, Joe resolved to try what could be done. She saw Mr. Lawrence drive off and then sallied out to dig her way down to the hedge, where she, she paused and took a survey. All quiet. Curtains down at the lower windows, servants out of sight, and nothing human visible but a curly black head leaning on a thin hand at the upper window. There he is, thought Joe. Poor boy, all alone and sick this dismal day. It's a shame. I'll toss up a snowball and make him look out and then say a kind word to him. Up went a handful of soft snow, and the head turned at once, showing a face which lost its listless look in a minute, as the big eyes brightened and the mouth began to smile. Joe nodded and laughed, and flourished her broom as she called out, "'How do you do? Are you sick?' Laurie opened the window and creaked out as hoarsely as a raven, "'Better. Thank you. I've had a bad cold and been shut up a week.' "'I'm sorry. What do you do to amuse yourself with?' "'Nothing. It's dull as tombs up here.' Don't you read? Not much. They won't let me. Can't somebody read to you? Grandpa does. Sometimes. But my books don't interest him, and I hate to ask Brooke all the time. Have you someone to come and see you, then? There isn't anyone I'd like to see. Boys make such a row, and my head is weak. Is there some nice girl who'd read and amuse you? Girls are quiet, and they like to play nurse. Don't know any. You know us, began Joe, then laughed and stopped. "'So I do. Will you come, please?' cried Lori. "'I'm not quiet and nice, but I'll come if Mother will let me. I'll go ask her. Shut that window like a good boy and wait till I come.' With that, Joe shouldered her broom and marched into the house, wondering what they would all say to her. Lori was in a flutter of excitement at the idea of having company, and he flew about to get ready, for, as Mrs. March said, he was a little gentleman, and did honor to the coming guest by brushing his curly pate, putting on a fresh collar, and trying to tidy up the room, which, in spite of half a dozen servants, was anything but neat. Presently there came a loud ring, then a decided voice asking for Mr. Lorry, and a surprised-looking servant came running up to announce a young lady. "'All right, show her up. It's Miss Joe,' said Lorry, going to the door of his little parlor to meet Joe, who appeared looking rosy and kind and quite at her ease, with a covered dish in one hand and Beth's three kittens in the other." "'Here I am, bag and baggage,' she said briskly. "'Mother sent her love and was glad if I could do anything for you. "'Meg wanted me to bring some of her blancmange. "'She makes it very nicely, and Beth thought her cats would be comforting. "'I knew you'd laugh at them, but I couldn't refuse. "'She was so anxious to do something.' "'It so happened that Beth's funny loan was just the thing, "'for in laughing over the kits, Laurie forgot his bashfulness "'and grew sociable at once. "'That looks too pretty to eat,' he said, smiling with pleasure.' as Joe uncovered the dish and showed the blancmange, surrounded by a garland of green leaves and the scarlet flowers of Amy's pet geranium. It isn't anything, only they all felt kindly and wanted to show it. Tell the girl to put it away for your tea. It's so simple you can eat it, and being soft it will slip down without hurting your sore throat. What a cozy room this is! It might be if it was kept nice, but the maids are lazy, and I don't know how to make them mind. It worries me, though. I'll write it up in two minutes, for it only needs to have the hearth brushed, so. And these things made straight on the mantelpiece, so. And the books put here. And the bottles there. And your sofa turned from the light. And the pillows plumped up a bit. Now, then, there you're fixed. And so he was. For as she laughed and talked, Joe had whisked things into place, and given quite a different air to the room. 
Laurie watched her in a respectful silence, and when she beckoned him to the sofa, he sat down with a sigh of satisfaction, saying gratefully, "'How kind you are. Yes, that's what we wanted. Now please, take the big chair, and let me do something to amuse my company.' "'No, I came to amuse you. Shall I read aloud?' And Joe looked affectionately toward some inviting books nearby. "'Thank you. I've read all of those, and if you don't mind, I'd rather talk,' said Laurie. "'Not a bit.' I'll talk all day if you only set me going. Beth says I never know when to stop. Is Beth the rosy one who stays at home a good deal and sometimes goes out with a little basket? Asked Laurie with interest. Yes, that's Beth. She's my girl, and a regular good one she is, too. The pretty one is Meg, and the curly-haired one is Amy, I believe? How did you find that out? Laurie colored up, but answered frankly. "'Why, you see, I often hear you calling to one another, "'and when I'm all alone up here, I can't help looking over at your house. "'You always seem to be having such good times. "'I beg your pardon for being so rude, "'but sometimes you forget to put down the curtain at the window where the flowers are, "'and when the lamps are lighted, it's like looking at a picture to see the fire, "'and you all around the table with your mother. "'Her face is right opposite, and it looks so sweet behind the flowers. "'I, I can't help watching it. "'I haven't got any mother, you know.' and Laurie poked the fire to hide a little twitching of the lips that he could not control. The solitary, hungry look in his eyes went straight to Joe's warm heart. She had been so simply taught that there was no nonsense in her head, and at fifteen she was as innocent and frank as any child. Laurie was sick and lonely, and feeling how rich she was in home love and happiness, she gladly tried to share it with him. Her face was very friendly, and her sharp voice unusually gentle as she said— We'll never draw that curtain any more, and I give you leave to look as much as you like. I just wish, though, instead of peeping, you'd come over and see us. Mother is so splendid, she'd do you heaps of good, and Beth would sing to you if I begged her to, and Amy would dance. Meg and I would make you laugh over funny stage properties, and we'd have jolly times. Wouldn't your grandpa let you? I think he would if your mother asked him. He's very kind, though. He doesn't look so, and he lets me do what I like pretty much, only he's afraid I might be a bother to strangers, began Laurie, brightening more and more. We are not strangers. We are neighbors, and you needn't think you'd be a bother. We want to know you, and I've been trying to do this for ever so long. We haven't been here a great while, you know, but we have got acquainted with all our neighbors but you. You see, Grandpa lives among his books, and he doesn't mind much what happens outside. "'Mr. Brooke, my tutor, doesn't stay here, you know, "'and I have no one to go about with me, "'so I just stop at home and get on as I can.' "'That's bad. "'You ought to make an effort and go visiting everywhere you are asked. "'Then you'll have plenty of friends and pleasant places to go to. "'Never mind being bashful. "'It won't last long if you keep going.' "'Laurie turned red again, "'but wasn't offended at being accused of bashfulness, "'for there was so much goodwill in Joe, "'it was impossible not to take her blunt speeches "'as kindly as they were meant.' "'Do you like your school?' asked the boy, changing the subject after a little pause, during which he stared at the fire, and Joe looked about her well-pleased. "'Don't go to school. I'm a businessman. Girl, I mean. I go to wait on my great-aunt, and dear cross old soul she is, too,' answered Joe. Laurie opened his mouth to ask another question, but remembering just in time that it wasn't manners to make too many inquiries about people's affairs, he shut it again and looked uncomfortable.' Joe liked his good breeding, and didn't mind having a laugh at Aunt March, so she gave him a lively description of the fidgety old lady, her fat poodle, the parrot that talked Spanish, and the library where she reveled. 
Lori enjoyed that immensely, and when she told about the prim old gentleman who came once to woo Aunt March, and in the middle of a fine speech how Paul had tweaked off his wig to his great dismay, the boy lay back and laughed till the tears ran down his cheeks, and a maid popped her head in to see what was the matter. "'Oh, that does me no end of good. Tell on, please,' he said, taking his face out of the sofa cushion, red and shining with merriment." Much elated with her success, Joe did tell on about their plays and plans, their hopes and fears for father, and the most interesting events of the little world in which the sisters lived. Then they got to talking about books, and to Joe's delight, she found that Laurie loved them as well as she did, and had read even more than herself. "'If you like them so much, come down and see ours. Grandpa is out, so you needn't be afraid,' said Laurie, getting up. "'I'm not afraid of anything,' returned Joe, with a toss of the head. "'I don't believe you are.' exclaimed the boy, looking at her with great admiration, though he privately thought she would have reason to be a trifle afraid of the old gentleman if she met him in one of his moods. The atmosphere of the whole house being summer-like, Laurie led her the way from room to room, letting Joe stop to examine whatever struck her fancy, and so at last they came to the library, where she clapped her hands and pranced as she always did when especially delighted. It was lined with books, and there were pictures and statues and distracting little cabinets full of coins and curiosities, and sleepy hollow chairs, and queer tables and bronzes, and best of all, a great open fireplace with quaint tiles all around it. "'What richness!' sighed Joe, sinking into the depth of a velvet chair and gazing about her with an air of intense satisfaction. "'Theodore Lawrence, you ought to be the happiest boy in the world,' she added impressively." "'A fellow can't live on books,' said Laurie, shaking his head as he perched on a table opposite. Before he could say more, a bell rung, and Joe flew up, exclaiming with alarm, "'Mercy me, it's your grandpa!' "'Well, what if it is? You're not afraid of anything, you know,' returned the boy, looking wicked. "'I think I am a little bit afraid of him, but I don't know why I should be. Marmy said I might come, and I don't think you're any the worse for it,' said Joe, composing herself, although she did keep her eyes on the door." "'I'm a great deal better for it, and ever so much obliged. "'I'm only afraid you are very tired talking to me. "'It was so pleasant, I couldn't bear to stop,' said Laurie gratefully. "'The doctor to see you, sir,' said the maid, beckoning as she spoke. "'Would you mind if I left you for a minute? "'I suppose I must see him,' said Laurie. "'Oh, don't mind me. I'm as happy as a cricket here,' answered Joe. "'Laurie went away, and his guest amused herself in her own way.' She was standing before a fine portrait of the old gentleman when the door opened again, and without turning she said decidedly, "'I'm sure now that I shouldn't be afraid of him, for he's got kind eyes, although his mouth is grim, and he looks as if he has a tremendous will of his own. He isn't as handsome as my grandfather, but I like him.' "'Thank you, ma'am,' said a gruff voice behind her, and there, to her great dismay, stood old Mr. Lawrence." Poor Joe blushed till she couldn't blush any redder, and her heart began to beat uncomfortably fast as she thought what she had said. For a minute a wild desire to run away possessed her, but that was cowardly, and the girls would laugh at her. So she resolved to stay, and get out of the scrape as best she could. A second look showed her that the living eyes under the bushy gray eyebrows were kinder even than the painted ones, and there was a sly twinkle in them, which lessened her fear a good deal. The gruff voice was gruffer than ever, as the old gentleman said abruptly, after a dreadful pause. "'So you're not afraid of me, hey?' "'Not much, sir.' "'And you don't think me as handsome as your grandfather?' "'Not quite, sir.' "'And I've got a tremendous will, have I?' "'I only said I thought so, sir.' "'But you like me, in spite of it.' 
Yes, I do, sir. That answer pleased the old gentleman. He gave a short laugh, shook hands with her, and putting his finger under her chin, turned up her face, examined it gravely, and let it go, saying with a nod, You've got your grandfather's spirit if you haven't his face. He was a fine man, my dear, but what is better? He was a brave and an honest one, and I was proud to be his friend. Thank you, sir. And Joe was quite comfortable after that, for it suited her exactly. What have you been doing to this boy of mine, hey? was the next question sharply put. Only trying to be neighborly, sir, said Joe, and told how her visit had come about. You think he needs cheering up a bit, do you? Yes, sir, he seems a little lonely, and young folks would do him good, perhaps. We are only girls, but we should be glad to help if we could, for we don't forget the splendid Christmas present you sent us, said Joe eagerly. Tut, 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 that was the boy's affair. How is the poor woman? Doing nicely, sir. And off went Joe, talking very fast as she told all about the Hummels, in whom her mother had interested richer friends than they were. Just her father's way of doing good. I shall come and see your mother some fine day. Tell her so. There's the tea bell. We have it early on the boy's account. Come down and go on being neighborly. If you'd like to have me, sir. Shouldn't ask you if I didn't. And Mr. Lawrence offered her his arm, the old fashioned courtesy. What would Meg say to this? thought Joe, as she was marched away while her eyes danced with fun as she imagined herself telling the story at home. Hey, what, why, what the dickens has come to the old fellow? said the old gentleman as Laurie came running down the stairs and brought up with a start of surprise at the astonishing sight of Joe arm in arm with his redoubtable grandfather. I didn't know you'd come, sir, he began as Joe gave him a triumphant little glance. That's evident by the way you racket down the stairs. Come to your tea, sir, and behave like a gentleman. And having pulled the boy's hair by way of caress, Mr. Lawrence walked on while Laurie went through a series of comic evolutions behind their backs, which nearly produced an explosion of laughter from Joe. The old gentleman did not say much as he drank his four cups of tea, but he watched the young people who soon chatted away like old friends, and the change in his grandson did not escape him. There was color, light, and life in the boy's face now vivacity in his manner, and genuine merriment in his laugh. She's right. The lad is lonely. I'll see what those girls can do for him, thought Mr. Lawrence as he looked and listened. He liked Joe, for her odd, blunt ways suited him, and she seemed to understand the boy almost as well as if she had been one herself. If the Lawrences had been what Joe called prim and pokey, she would not have got on at all, for such people always made her shy and awkward, but finding them free and easy, she was so herself, and made a good impression. When they rose, she proposed to go, but Laurie said he had something more to show her, and took her away to the conservatory, which had been lighted for her benefit. It seemed quite fairy-like to Joe as she went up and down the walks, enjoying the blooming walls on either side, the soft light, the damp sweet air, and the wonderful vines and trees that hung above her, while her new friend cut the finest flowers till his hands were full. Then he tied them up, saying, with a happy look Joe liked to see, "'Please give these to your mother, and tell her I like the medicine she sent me very much.' They found Mr. Lawrence standing before the fire in the great drawing-room, but Joe's attention was entirely absorbed by a grand piano which stood open. "'Do you play?' she asked, turning to Laurie with a respectful expression. "'Sometimes,' he answered modestly. "'Please do now. I want to hear it so I can tell Beth.' "'Won't you first? "'Don't know how. Too stupid to learn. But I love music dearly.' So Laurie played, and Joe listened, with her nose luxuriously buried in heliotrope and tea roses. 
Her respect and regard for the Lawrence boy increased very much, for he played remarkably well and didn't put on any airs. She wished Beth could hear him, but she did not say so, only praised him till he was quite abashed, and his grandfather came to the rescue. "'That will do, that will do, young lady. Too many sugar-plums are not good for him. His music isn't bad, but I hope he will do as well in more important things.' "'Going? Well, I'm much obliged to you, and I hope you'll come again. My respects to your mother. Good night, Dr. Joe.' He shook hands kindly, but looked as if something did not please him. When they got into the hall, Joe asked Laurie if she had said anything amiss. He shook his head. "'No, it's me. He doesn't like to hear me play.' "'Why not?' "'I'll tell you some day. John is going home with you, as I can't. No need of that. I am not a young lady, and it's only a step. Take care of yourself, won't you?' "'Yes, but you will come again, I hope. "'If you promise to come and see us after you're well.' "'I will. "'Good night, Laurie. "'Good night, Joe. "'Good night.' "'When all the afternoon's adventures had been told, "'the family felt inclined to go visiting in a body, "'for each found something very attractive "'in the big house on the other side of the hedge. "'Mrs. March wanted to talk of her father "'with the old man who had not forgotten him. "'Meg longed to walk in the conservatory. "'Beth sighed for the grand piano.' and Amy was eager to see the fine pictures and statues. "'Mother, why didn't Mr. Lawrence like to have Laurie play?' asked Joe, who was of an inquiring disposition. "'I'm not sure, but I think it was because his son, Laurie's father, married an Italian lady, a musician which displeased the old man who is very proud. The lady was good and lovely and accomplished, but he did not like her, and never saw his son after he married. They both died when Laurie was a little child,' and then his grandfather took him home. I fancy the boy, who was born in Italy, is not very strong, and the old man is afraid of losing him, which makes him so careful. Laurie comes naturally by his love of music, for he is like his mother, and I dare say his grandfather fears that he may want to be a musician. At any rate, his skill reminds him of the woman he did not like, and so he glowered, as Joe said. Dear me, how romantic, exclaimed Meg. "'How silly!' said Joe. "'Let him be a musician if he wants to, "'and not a plague his life out sending him to college "'when he hates to go.' "'That's why he has such handsome black eyes "'and pretty manners, I suppose. "'Italians are always nice,' said Meg, "'who was a little sentimental. "'What do you know about his eyes and his manners? "'You never spoke to him hardly,' cried Joe, "'who was not sentimental.' I saw him at the party, and what you tell shows that he knows how to behave. That was a nice little speech about the medicine mother sent him. He meant the blancmange, I suppose. How stupid you are, child. He meant you, of course. Did he? And Joe opened her eyes, as if it had never occurred to her before. I never saw such a girl. You don't know how a compliment when you get it, said Meg with the air of a young lady who knew all about the matter. "'I think they are great nonsense, and I'll thank you not to be silly and spoil my fun. "'Laurie's a nice boy, and I like him, and I won't have any sentimental stuff about compliments and such rubbish. "'We'll all be good to him, because he hasn't got any mother, and he may come over and see us, mayn't he, Marmy?' "'Yes, Joe. Your little friend is very welcome, and I hope Meg will remember that children should be children as long as they can.' "'I don't call myself a child, and I'm not in my teens yet,' observed Amy. "'What do you say, Beth?' "'I was thinking about our pilgrim's progress,' answered Beth, who had not said a word. "'How we got out of the slow and through the wicket gate, by resolving to be good, and up the steep hill by trying, and that, maybe, 
The house over there, full of splendid things, is going to be our palace beautiful. We've got to get by the lions first, said Joe, as if she rather liked the prospect. End of chapter five. Chapter six. Beth finds the palace beautiful. The big house did prove a palace beautiful, though it took some time for all to get in, and Beth found it very hard to pass the lions. Old Mr. Lawrence was the biggest one, but after he had called, said something funny or kind to each one of the girls, and talked over old times with their mother, nobody felt much afraid of him except timid Beth. The other lion was the fact that they were poor, and Laurie rich, for this made them shy of accepting favors which they could not return. But after a while they found that he considered them the benefactors, and could not do enough to show how grateful he was for Mrs. March's motherly welcome, their cheerful society, and the comfort he took in that humble home of theirs. So they th soon forgot their pride and interchanged kindnesses without stopping to think which was the greater. All sorts of pleasant things happened about that time, for the new friendship flourished like grass in spring. Everyone liked Laurie, and he privately informed his tutor that the Marches were regularly splendid girls. With the delightful enthusiasm of youth, they took the solitary boy into their midst and made much of him, and he found something very charming in the innocent companionship of those simple-hearted girls. Never having known mother or sisters, he was quick to feel the influences they brought about him, and their busy, lively ways made him ashamed of the indolent life he led. He was tired of books, and he found people so interesting now that Mr. Brooke was obliged to make very unsatisfactory reports, for Laurie was always playing truant and running over to the marches. "'Never mind. Let him take a holiday and make it up afterwards,' said the old gentleman. "'The good lady next door says he is studying too hard and needs a young society, amusement, and exercise, and I suspect she is right, and that I've been coddling the fellow as if I'd been his grandmother.' Let him do what he likes as long as he's happy. He can't get into mischief in that little nunnery over there, and Mrs. March is doing more for him than we can. What good times they had, to be sure. Such plays and tableau, such sleigh rides and skating frolics, such pleasant evenings in the old parlor, and now and then such gay little parties at the great house. Meg could walk into the conservatory whenever she liked and revel in bouquets. Joe browsed over the new library voraciously and convulsed the old gentleman with her criticisms. Amy copied pictures and enjoyed beauty to her heart's content, and Laurie played Lord of the Manor in the most delightful style. But Beth, though yearning for the grand piano, could not pluck up enough courage to go to the Mansion of Bliss, as Meg called it. She went once with Joe, but the old gentleman, not being aware of her infirmity, stared at her so hard from under his heavy eyebrows and said, Hey! so loud, that he frightened her so much that her feet chattered on the floor, she told her mother and she ran away, declaring she would never go there any more, not even for the dear piano. No persuasions or enticements could overcome her fear, till the fact coming to Mr. Lawrence's ear in some mysterious way, he set about mending matters. During one of the brief calls he made, he artfully led the conversation to music, and talked away about great singers whom he had seen, fine organs he had heard, and told such charming anecdotes that Beth found it impossible to stay in her distant corner, but crept nearer and nearer, as if fascinated. At the back of his chair she stopped and stood listening, with her great eyes wide open and her cheeks red with the excitement of this unusual performance. 
taking no more notice of her than if she had been a fly. Mr. Lawrence talked on about Laurie's lessons and teachers, and presently, as if the idea had just occurred to him, he said to Mrs. March, "'The boy neglects his music now, and I'm glad of it, for he was always getting too fond. But the piano suffers for want of use. Wouldn't some of your girls like to run over and practice on it now and then, just to keep it in tune, you know, ma'am?' Beth took a step forward and pressed her hands tightly together to keep from clapping them, for this was an irresistible temptation, and the thought of practicing on that splendid instrument quite took her breath away. Before Mrs. March could reply, Mr. Lawrence went on with an odd little nod and smile. "'They needn't see or speak to any one, but run in at any time, for I'm shut in my study at the other end of the house. Laurie is out a great deal, and the servants are never near the drawing-room after nine o'clock.' Here he rose, as if going, and Beth made up her mind to speak, for the last arrangement left nothing to be desired. "'Please, tell the young ladies what I say, and if they don't care to come, why, never mind.' Here a little hand slipped into his, and Beth looked up at him with a face full of gratitude as she said, in her earnest yet timid way, "'Oh, sir, they do care very, very much.' "'Are you the musical girl?' he asked without any startling hey as he looked down at her very kindly. "'I'm Beth. I love it dearly, and I'll come if you are quite sure no one will hear me and be disturbed,' she added, fearing to be rude and trembling at her old bol own boldness as she spoke. "'Not a soul, my dear. The house is empty half the day. So come and drum away as much as you like, and I shall be obliged to you.' "'How kind you are, sir!' Beth blushed like a rose under the friendly look he wore, but she was not frightened now and gave the big hand a grateful squeeze, because she had no words to thank him for the precious gift he had given her. The old gentleman softly stroked the hair off her forehead, and then stooping down, he kissed her, saying in a tone few people had ever heard, "'I had a little girl once, with eyes like these. God bless you, my dear.' "'Good day, madam,' and away he went, in a great hurry." Beth had a rapture with her mother, and then rushed up to import the glorious news to her family of invalids as the girls were not at home. How blithely she sung that evening, and how they all laughed at her because she woke Amy in the night by playing the piano on her face in her sleep. The next day, having seen both the old and young gentleman out of the house, Beth, after two or three retreats, fairly got in at the side door, and made her way as noiselessly as any mouse to the drawing-room where her idol stood quite by accident, of course, some pretty, easy music lay on the piano, and with trembling fingers and frequent stops to listen and look about, Beth at last touched the great instrument, and straightway forgot her fear, herself, and everything else but the unspeakable delight which the music gave her, for it was like the voice of a beloved friend. She stayed until Hannah came to take her home to dinner, but she had no appetite, and could only sit and smile upon every one in a general state of beatitude. After that, the little brown hood slipped through the hedge nearly every day, and the great drawing-room was haunted by a tuneful spirit that came and went unseen. She never knew that Mr. Lawrence often opened his study door to hear the old-fashioned airs he liked. She never saw Laurie mount guard in the hall to warn the servants away. She never suspected— that the exercise books and the new songs which she found in the rack were put there for her especial benefit, and when he talked to her about music at home, she only thought how kind he was to tell things that helped her so much. So she enjoyed herself heartily, and found, what isn't always the case, that her granted wish was all she had hoped for. 
Perhaps it was because she was so grateful for this blessing that a greater was given her. At any rate, she deserved both. Mother, I'm going to work Mr. Lawrence a pair of slippers. He's so kind to me. I must thank him, and I don't know any other way. Can I do it? asked Beth a few weeks after that eventful call of his. Yes, dear, it will please him very much and be a nice way of thanking him. The girls will help you about them, and I will pay for the making up, replied Mrs. March, who took peculiar pleasure in granting Beth's requests, because she so seldom asked for anything for herself. After many serious discussions with Meg and Joe, the pattern was chosen, the materials bought, and the slippers begun. A cluster of grave yet cheerful pansies on a deep purple background was pronounced very appropriate and pretty, and Beth worked away early and late with occasional lifts of over-hard parts. She was a nimble little needlewoman, and they were finished before anyone got tired of them. Then she wrote a very short, simple note, and with Lori's help, got them smuggled up to the study table one morning before the old gentleman was up. When this excitement was over, Beth waited to see what would happen next. All that day passed, and part of the next, before any acknowledgment arrived, that, and she was beginning to fear she had offended her crotchety friend. On the afternoon of the second day, she went out to do an errand and give poor Joanna, the invalid doll, her daily exercise. As she came up on the street, on her return, she saw three, yes, four, heads popping in and out of the parlor windows, and the moment she saw them several hands were waved and joyful cries screamed. "'Here's a letter from the old gentleman. Come quick and read it.' "'Oh, Beth, he sent you!' began Amy, gesticulating with seeming energy. But she got no further, for Joy quenched her by slamming down the window." Beth hurried on in a flutter of suspense. At the door her sister seized and bore her to the parlor in a triumphal procession, all pointing, all saying at once, "'Look there! Look there!' Beth did, and turned pale with delight and surprise. For there stood a little cabinet piano, with a letter lying on the glossy lid, directed like a signboard, to Miss Elizabeth March. "'For me?' gasped Beth, holding on to Joe and feeling as if she should tumble down. It was such an overwhelming thing altogether. "'Yes, for you, my precious. Isn't it splendid of him? Don't you think he's the dearest old man in the world? Here is your key in the letter. We didn't open it, but we are dying to know what he says,' cried Joe, hugging her sister and offering the note. "'You read it. I can't. I feel so queer. Oh, it is too lovely.' And Beth hid her face in Joe's apron, quite upset by her present. Joe opened the paper and began to laugh, for the first few words she saw— were Miss March. Dear Madam. Oh, how nice it sounds. I wish someone would write to me so, said Amy, who thought the old-fashioned address was very elegant. I have had many pairs of slippers in my life, but I never had any that suited me so well as yours, continued Joe. Heartsease is my favorite flower, and these will always remind me of the gentle giver. I like to pay my debts, so I know you will allow the old gentleman to send you something which once belonged to the little granddaughter he lost. With hearty thanks and best wishes, I remain your grateful friend and humble servant, James Lawrence. Oh, there, Beth, that's an honor to be proud of, I'm sure. Laurie told me how fond Mr. Lawrence used to be of the child who died and how he kept all her things carefully. Just think he's given you her piano— "'That comes of having big blue eyes and loving music,' said Joe, trying to soothe Beth, who trembled and looked more excited than she had ever been before. 
See the cunning brackets to hold candles, and the nice green silk puckered up with a gold rose in the middle, and the pretty rack and stool all complete, added Meg, opening the instrument and displaying its beauties. Your humble servant, James Lawrence, only think of his writing that to you. I'll tell all the girls. They'll think it's splendid, said Amy, much impressed by the note. Try it, honey. Let's hear the sound of the baby piano, said Hannah, who always took a share in the family's joys and sorrows. So Beth tried it, and everyone pronounced it the most remarkable piano ever heard. It had evidently been newly tuned and put in apple pie order, but perfect as it was, I think the real charm of it lay in the happiest of all happy faces which leaned over it, as Beth lovingly touched the beautiful black and white keys and pressed the bright petals. You'll have to go and thank him, said Joe by way of joke, for the idea of this child's really going over never entered her head. Yes, I mean to. I guess I'll go now before I get frightened thinking about it. And to the utter amazement of the assembled family, Beth walked deliberately down the garden, through the hedge, and in at the Lawrence's door. Well, I wish I may die if that ain't the queerest thing I've ever seen. That piano has turned her head. She'd never have gone in her right mind cried Hannah, staring after her, while the girls were rendered quite speechless by the miracle. They would have been still more amazed if they had seen what Beth did afterward. If you will believe me, she went and knocked at the study door before she came, gave herself time to think, and when a gruff voice called out, Come in. She did go in, right up to Mr. Lawrence, who looked quite taken aback, and held out her hand, saying, with only a small quaver in her voice, I came to thank you, sir, for... But she didn't finish, for he looked so friendly that she forgot her speech, and only remembering that he had lost the little girl he loved, she put both arms round his neck and kissed him. If the roof of the house had suddenly flown off, the old gentleman would have been more astonished, but he liked it, oh dear, yes, he liked it amazingly, and was so touched and pleased by that confiding little kiss that all his crustiness vanished, and he just set her on his knee and laid his wrinkled cheek against her rosy one feeling as if he had got his own little granddaughter back again. Beth ceased to fear him from that moment, and sat there talking to him as cosily as if she had known him all her life, for love casts out fear, and gratitude can conquer pride. When she went home, he walked with her to her own gate, shook hands cordially, and touched his hat as he marched back again, looking very stately and erect, like a handsome, soldierly old gentleman, as he was. When the girls saw that performance, Joe began to dance a jig, by way of expressing her satisfaction. Amy nearly fell out of the window in her surprise, and Meg exclaimed with uplifted hands, Well, I do believe the world is coming to an end. End of chapter 6 And you can tell that I had to record the chapters today. <laughs> I had forgotten that these were some of the lousy ones until I imported the audio file, so... So you had to put up with me. I hope that's okay with you. Have a great week. I'll talk to you next. Bye. And please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Go to knittingoutloud.com. Listen while you knit. carolinahomespun.com and thegoldengatefiberinstitute.org.
You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, Libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous donations of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.